Welcome to the Remote Warfare Programme podcast. In this episode, we have a recording of a panel from the Conceptualising Remote Warfare Conference, which the Remote Warfare Programme held in collaboration with the University of Kent on the 28th of February and 1st of March. The conference pulled together a wide range of experts from the military, government, academia and civil society to discuss the past, present and future of remote warfare as well as the implications of this approach. We couldn't have organised a conference without the support of the Conflict Analysis Research Centre at the University of Kent and the British International Studies Association. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can hear more panels in our upcoming episodes and you can read more depth in more depth about the topics in our upcoming book released in early 2020. For now, enjoy the podcast. Great. Okay. So thank you for coming. This is a heavy lift. Friday afternoon, uh, you know, last last session and having to move. So I uh, really appreciate you coming coming here. Uh, to me, this is really exciting because we the, the last two days, which have been really awesome, uh, it's well done. Um, we're we're kind of pivoting now from the, the the past and present to the future. And what is and what is the what is the future of remote warfare look like? What does the future of war look like? Uh, and I argue that, that we are at a really pivotal time in, in human history. Um, and we have not thought through a lot of the ramifications of what is happening today. So, so since we haven't thought through that, we have some great people to, to, to be uh, thinking about that. Um, so I'm going to take the liberty of going first. Um, and I hope we'll be kind of a broad scene setter and also hope uh, to show the value of kind of a diverse um, set of, of uh, perspectives. Okay, so here we go. Okay, great. And so, um, you know, I've really, so I've really enjoyed this conference a lot. Um, and I sometimes have had, had to bite my tongue because uh, some of my favorite topics uh, have come up, you know, civilian casualties, civilian protection, drones, uh, Yemen, uh, you know, working with partners in general. Uh, and so, you know, kind of thinking about all the stuff that I've been doing the last 20 years, if you know what I've done, uh, you might go, what in the world is this? Um, so so I uh, just wanted to say just for a minute, uh, kind of how I got into this area. So, so I've done a lot of technical work for the U.S. military and working with other militaries on, you know, really data-based approaches to civilian <laughs> protection and just uh, being more effective. Um, so, I, so that was really you know, very operational work, working directly with militaries, uh, often out in the field. Uh, then I was asked to join the State Department because basically they said, you know, we, we, so we have a policy gap with, with respect to civilian protection, so can you come and, and kind of work in the policy area? And that's, that kind of led to me uh, going to Yemen. No, no, not Yemen, actually. I went to Saudi Arabia, working in that context. But, um, so, but as I was doing that work, there was a lot of discussion about artificial intelligence and lethal autonomy. And so someone said, you know, it seems like with these new technologies in war, we should be concerned about civilians. So maybe you can just kind of join in those discussions. So, so I started going and there was an interagency uh, policy committee on, on lethal autonomy and AI. Uh, and they added me to the, to the US delegation to the UN for lethal autonomous weapon systems and so forth. And I was really struck because uh, there, there just wasn't a, like an operationally 
informed perspective. You had, you had, I mean, they were good perspectives. You had a civil society perspective. You had a technologist perspective, a futurist perspective. But it's like you, it wasn't really a connecting of the dots from where we are here to, you know, in 2040, we'll have, you know, drones with drones with little drones on top. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, and what, what are the risks of this, right? Um, so, um, so after the State Department and the new administration where we don't need a State Department. Um, so I went back to CNA and basically CNA was like, this is a really important aspect of future war. So, uh, so we want you to, to kind of lead a, a kind of an interdisciplinary effort on this. So, so it's you know, Center for Autonomy and Artificial Intelligence. So it's not just me. Uh, it's, so I sort of bring sort of the operational perspective and also honestly the civilian protection perspective because uh, that is a really important piece of, of kind of thinking about this technology and war. Um, but I'm also surrounded by some really smart people. I have one guy who's you know, written a graduate level textbook on AI and keeps me honest in, in uh, all the very you know, little details about the technology. Uh, and I think you know, we're better together, right? So, so that's kind of the perspective that we take in the organization. I, I do have a link there if you're curious because we've been writing a lot of reports to try to delve into some of these issues. Um, okay, so that's sort of background in a nutshell. So, um, so just a few slides. So first of all, you know, this is, in some respects, this is nothing new. And some people will say there's nothing new here. Militaries always look for a military edge from technology. On the other hand, AI is really fundamentally different. And you know, some people call this the third revolution in military warfare, but it, AI is gonna change everything. And that includes the waging of war. And we also see this other, and another thing changing, which is that research and development has always sort of been a, a military and government-led practice, but now and we see more and more the commercial uh, sector having uh, a bigger role. And so you see a lot of changes kind of all at once. Um, and I want to take a minute just to talk about AI and, and really just make one point. I, mean, I, could, I could spend an hour here and that would probably put you all to sleep. But, um, but one thing I want to make, make clear is that, you know, first of all, there's a long history of AI. So um, really, you know, 50s, 60s was really where it came, came in to play. I have this really funny quote here. Um, so in 55, they said, we're going to have this two-month, 10-man study. We're basically just going to solve what AI can do. Okay. Well, we're still working on that. Um, and you see this a lot is, is there's kind of a mismatch between where the technology is and where we think it is and what we think we can achieve. The biggest point I think you, I want to make here is that so you have machine learning and the, the slide here, and then it kind of continues, right? So it's lots and lots of stuff happening. We're in this machine learning era. What this, what this means for us is that we do not have sentient artificial beings. What we have is, is basically um, we have machines that do um, optimization over multidimensional surfaces to find you know, optimal problems for very narrow problems. So, so you know, when people think about, okay, you know, you're like, like a killer robot, a machine, it, we, are not, we are not nowhere close to having a capability that is sentient, that is making its own fundamental decisions. We have things like Google Maps. We have things like you know, anti-fraud software. 
we can do really specific things and, and use big data and do really powerful things, but it's also fragile, it's very narrow. So, and, and this is the kind of technology that militaries are looking to use. Uh, so, just okay, a little bit. So, so the, the kind of the current situation in one slide. So what we see is we have government and then we have civil society. This is a little oversimplistic, but so forgive me for that. But militaries, they are keen, they are really keen <laughs> to apply AI in military solutions. And they, they, you know, people talk about an AI race and I, I'd argue um, it's, it's somewhat self-inflicted because each country is listening to each other's rhetoric and it's, it's making them go faster. Uh, but I do think that, that AI is definitely a high priority for a lot of states. But they don't understand the details, they don't understand the limitations, they don't understand the requirements of the technology. So they're not nearly as far along as you may think that they are. Um, and US in particular, and I've been trying to nudge them in this area, um, they've identified some virtuous uses of AI. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit, but nothing done to date. Okay, civil society. Um, so for lethal autonomy, there's, there's a big push for a preemptive ban on, on lethal autonomy. The problem is that it's really based on this general AI idea, which doesn't exist. Um, it's also based on kind of a trigger pull decision, uh, narrow um, view on the use of force uh, that I think is missing a lot. Um, so, so, so neither is really considering all the actual risks or the opportunities for, for civilian protection. So I've been trying to think a lot about how can we better do this and how can we better account for the real risks, okay? Because, because I'm not saying that they're not real, not risks, there are significant risks. And by the way, Jennifer in her presentation yesterday about metadata is a great example of some real and scary risks of this technology that is not being discussed. So next month at the UN talking about lethal autonomy, they're not gonna talk about that, but we should be talking about it because it's scary. And, and, and there are, so I've tried to identify a number of different areas of risk. And again, we're really not talking about these things. And then I have this because so much of the discussion, and part of this is in the UN, is talking about, well, who's gonna pull the trigger? And my point is, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You have to think about how AI could be used in all of these different pieces, okay? And it could be used in good ways, but it also could be used in very risky ways. And so we need to broaden this conversation much more than what we have now. Um, so this is just really a start to, to, to help us to think about having this broader discussion. The other thing I want to make clear is AI can be used for good. So one of the things uh, that, I, that I did last year, I worked with the US military on a report on civilian casualties in Mosul and Raqqa, and it was ugly. Uh, and what happened in Mosul and Raqqa was not good. Um, so, so because I'm supposed to be working on AI, uh, you know, the next thing I did was, okay, now, so after that analysis, I understand exactly how civilian casualties happen in Mosul and Raqqa. So the next question is, can AI help? Can, you know, there's all this interest in the US to apply AI. So can we kind of use some of those resources and energy to, to have, have a, a positive effect? So, and so basically, these are based on the actual problems we saw in Mosul and Raqqa. 
And yes, you could actually design basically machine learning techniques to do each of these functions, which would help problems that we have now operationally. So, and this is just, you know, thinking about this for, for a little bit. So again, there's, there's a lot more to, that can be done in this area. So last slide. So, um, so again, research and development is, is out there, uh, is very important. Civil society is increasing in influence. Militaries are developing strategies. They're thinking right now. Um, and in fact, the, the US DUD AI strategy just came out two weeks ago. Um, and uh, it has in there, it has, we will use AI to help protect civilians, okay? They don't know how to do that. Uh, and there is not an internal real constituent for that purpose. So it would be, it would be helpful for them to hear from external audiences that these are good things to put resources into. So, so this last quote is just basically, we, we are, we're at a very interesting time because there, there's lots of change, there's lots of resources being devoted, um, and we have to be thinking about risks. And I, I have this here because I think all of these need to be working together in concert, uh, which right now it, uh, we're, we're not there. So I've, I've gone over myself, so I'm gonna stop. Uh, so you want to go next? Thank you very much, Larry. I'm going towards that direction. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, how uh, AI applications within the context of NATO uh, peace operations. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me today. Um, in fact, AI, artificial intelligence within NATO, um, I think it's worth mentioning that AI is not that new within NATO or the world of defense. Uh, the military has been testing AI applications for around 60 years. And um, NATO, for example, already used it in its activities, such as in the development of, uh, for example, interoperable semi-automated forces or computer-generated forces um, used for simulations for exercise scenario. Uh, and these would require uh, least human resources but um, the technology is used so as to be able to operate in more complex environment. Uh, and one example of that is NATO's uh, air power uh, mission training through distributed simulation. And that technology involves fair use and multiple air crew simulators, for example, as well as training centers and uh, multiple command and control. Um, so now, why am I working on narratives? Um, I think it's a very important <coughs> aspect of uh, the policy making uh, world. Uh, I have been studying these as they are powerful tools in shaping uh, social life at all levels. And uh, they can shape the interactions of the actors involved in the process, uh, the decisions they are making, um, even the courses of their actions. and. Um, Many narratives, in fact, define agenda setting. For example, with AI is important uh, to NATO. The narratives they are shaping, uh, they are shaping um, would really define the agenda setting. Um, and uh, also the actors shaping these narratives, the places where they, where they are produced, 
for example, in the case of NATO, these narratives are delivered, for example, at Harvard, at big security conference such as Globsex uh, conference or or uh, the sec um, um, the Munich uh, conference, and all of these play important roles in the process. Um, so, on the whole. Three main factors, I think, have influenced the shaping of NATO AI narratives. And um, these narratives are, are quite new, but they emerged out of three main contexts, I think. Uh, threats, um, rivalry slash competition, and the local AI landscape development. Uh, first, um, the alliance, its partners, and the countries it considered to be uh, strategic in its operations have been facing more and more uh, cyber threats. And uh, such a situation of uncertainty and instability called out for significant and firm stand, both at the political and, uh, and, uh, and the operational level. For example, the case of Estonia, as you know, uh, regarding cyber threats, uh, attacks and the case of Ukraine, which is uh, constantly uh, facing hybrid warfare. And second, um, these last two years, I think, have seen important development in how AI has been adopted by nation states. Um, and you would hear very often about um, uh, uh, narratives, uh, NATO narratives, um, uh, singling out uh, China and Russia all the time, and one thus can hear about a NATO that could stand up to the bullies of the international arena and say, no, we must do something. And finally, at the national level, when uh, NATO member states and partners started to show interest in AI, like the US, um, uh, some developed strategies, uh, AI strat uh, national strategies, and while others um, uh, decided that they would integrate AI in their respective national defenses, for example, France. Um, so those situations also played key roles. And obviously, the, the, those local situations are paired with the ongoing and um, rather uh, fast uh, development of AI in the industry world and the discussions as well that have been triggered by policymakers, as I mentioned earlier, scholars and, and the media on it. And all of these are more and more requiring NATO um, to, from their um, uh, speech, uh, discourse, adapt, innovate, and most importantly, maintain competitive uh, advantages. Uh, so um, where does it... Um, and in terms of the actors involved, uh, who are the main uh, shapers of these narratives within NATO? First of all, there is NATO SCT, um, which is based in Norfolk. And uh, it is what I consider to be the main backbone of AI applications in the Alliance. Uh, it is, in fact, taking charge of leading NATO's transformation uh, in terms of warfare development of the military structure, forces, and capabilities, and doctrine. Um, there is also the NATO uh, Science and Technology Organization, STO, which is a subsidiary body conducting uh, deep research. Uh, they organize events, and they implement educational activities as well. And there's also NATO Parliamentary Assembly Science and Technology Committee. And uh, it is, in fact, separate from NATO. 
but uh, among its aim is really to provide uh, greater transparency of NATO policies <coughs> and foster a better understanding of the alliance's objectives and missions among um, legislators and the citizens of the alliance. And finally, at the political level, we have um, uh, uh, individual actors such as the SG, the Secretary General, the, the, deputies, the Deputy SG, and I would also include uh, former NATO key leaders in that category, for example, the former SG. But before discussing about these narratives, let me give you a, a brief overview of the state of AI within the alliance. Uh, just a few examples from my papers. Um, for NATO ACT, a great majority of the work that is currently doing has to do a, uh, a lot with strategic foresight, testing, uh, as well as setting up proof of concept. Especially for, for the latter, um, uh, it's very important because they say that it's very difficult to get the member states on board with the idea of integrating AI in the operations. And uh, for example, during the, uh, the most current uh, exercise, uh, trident, uh, juncture, juncture, sorry, um, the test is around 20 uh, AI-related technology. Uh, and one of the flagship initiatives um, of NATO is the so-called autonomy project uh, in the field of cyber defense, and where interoperability is also an important issue that has been raised. Now, I think it's very important the work that STO is doing, uh, the science uh, technology organization. Um, there have been uh, around 16 initiatives. Uh, they've been implementing since 2014, of which eight are active, six are under the planning phase, and two are awaiting the publication of the reports. And, um, and uh, um, there is a strong focus on activities involving planning, management, uh, procurement, uh, also activita activities related to cost. Uh, for example, there is a project on enterprise resource planning, ERP, uh, and one related to the domain of digital employees um, for network management and control. Um, uh, and this explores, in fact, the possibility of using intelligent agents um, uh, to perform tasks su such as uh, responding to customers' calls. Uh, STOs, in STO, in fact, views the latter to be one of the area um, where it sees first the wide-scale adoption of artificial intelligence in NATO's military domain as uh, the products uh, available from the commercial um, IT market are, are likely to align well with the needs of uh, the, the NATO military, uh, the, within the needs of the military. Um, and it's, it also has initiatives aiming at uh, improving uh, what I consider to be capacities for day-to-day -day operations as well as on the ground. Uh, for example, they have projects on uh, cloud-based and data-centric security services and uh, the use of uh, deep machine learning for cyber defense. Um, I just wanted to point out that there are so many applications of AI that are not discussed about and uh, NATO are, uh, uh, is working on these. For example, on, um, there are also initiatives on cognition, synthetic biology, as well as technologies for medical uh, healthcare professionals. Um, and I think STO is doing uh, the most important work, I think, 
because uh, they are the most uh, uh, vocal about ethical issues related to AI, uh, such as issues concerning trust, explainability, fairness, robustness, and accountability in machine learning uh, system. Human autonomy scheming as well, okay, and human in the loop for AI. Uh, regarding the narratives, uh, there have been nar various narratives at play, but uh, we don't have time. So I will only single out one, I think, which is very important. Um, this uh, actor-centric narratives, I think it's really important because um, and it is having and will have significant implication in terms of how AI is governed uh, and how it will be applied within the alliance. And that narrative is that is that of inclusion and adaptation. And uh, they started to include those uh, outside the traditional defense industry, uh, such as startup. And uh, and STO is doing the same. But I and I think it is a bold move. And one can see here a process towards a, a new mode of governance, if I could say. Um, and um, and and why I'm saying that? It's because for now uh, and before that, um, science and technology within NATO uses a collaborative business model, right? And uh, uh, the nations define their own resources and, and um, they elect and choose these resources. And there is the in-house delivery business model where activities are conducted by the executive bodies. But that kind of uh, framework, I think, opens up to future possibilities. And maybe we could talk about uh, a new mode of governance, uh, a mode of governance towards a democratic one within NATO. It may be possible. Um, uh, but that being said, we are not there yet. Still, I still have time. Or yeah. <laughs> and say twenty seconds. Okay. <laughs> um, but what I have noticed is that there are less NATO AI narratives on ethics among these actors I've been discussing, um, and trusting the topics we've been discussing here in the political narratives would be very difficult. Uh, and but one would hear much more narratives on of deterrence, defense and also enhancing capabilities in terms of information as, uh, and situational awareness. Um, that is where it's important, the role of NATO PA, uh, Parliamentary Assembly, because they are the ones who push the discussion, uh, for example, towards the need to regulate development <coughs> of unmanned def defense technologies uh, and AI, the weapons. They are also, the w because they think that the role of the alliance is to protect civilians, right? And um, uh, they are also the ones who are pushing, for example, for an increased policing of cryptographic technologies, such as AI and big data. Um, and, uh, and also, that's, I think it's interesting as well, uh, they also push the need for an international treaty on cybersecurity. And the role of NATO uh, PA, which is outside uh, the whole body of NATO, I think it's very important. But they do not have this capacity to um, to to shape influent and dominant narratives. And I think that's uh, we need more work. Uh, we need to do more work at this level. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> for I use my own timer as well, so <laughs> just to be on the safe side. 
Uh, all right, uh, so I will talk mainly about uh, so-called future practices of, of remote warfare in the context of autonomous weapon systems um, and, and investigating the significance that these so-called uh, ORs or laws, depending on what kind of definition you follow, will have on remote warfare. And I make two specific points. Um, the first is something about uh, distance and these, these emerging uh, AI-driven technologies. Um, and to what extent, and I think as some I, I'm kind of sitting in between both kind of, um, so we'll touch upon both general and narrow aspects of AI, because I think it's, it's important to keep both of them in mind when we think about uh, AI-driven technologies in, in the use of force context. Um, uh, and then I will talk about the issue of meaningful human control. And here we'll, I will make the argument that this, this has been emerging as the potential kind of focus of the debate in Geneva, you know, so basically uh, we, we um, uh, many states kind of say that um, it's inappropriate to delegate uh, the use of force decision completely to machines, uh, but then we come immediately to this idea of meaningful control and what this means and what this delimits, you know, and, and different understandings of that. And I will talk about that in the, in the, in the context of historical practice, practices of remote warfare, and to what extent these actually imply meaningful human control. Uh, and I will argue that there has been um, there have been lots of practices that have not been uh, deliberated or um, kind of verbalized, right, about meaningful human control and what are the limits of that and what kind of limits can we accept that are now coming out through this debate about autonomous weapon systems, interestingly. Okay, so, so let me start with the first one, the two types, two observations about distance I want to make. Uh, and here really I'm talking about um, the, the, um, the most negative vision we could think about when we think about an autonomous weapon system. So a system that has uh, autonomy in, in its critical functions, so, uh, and which, is, which is most often talked about at the end Geneva, you know, so at the very end of the targeting process. So these are systems that would be able to, to engage in target selection, identification, and attack without requiring further human supervision. Um, and, um, and I think these, these systems, if you think about them, they basically would remove human decision-making from the immediate decisions on, on, on the use of force, and therefore just exacerbate some of the trends we've talked about in the last two days. So um, first of all, the, the trend of technological distance, you know, so that basically the one side is then completely, in any shape or form, even mentally, you know, um, detached from, from, from war fighting in a sense, whereas of course on the other side, uh, people will, will always be dying. Uh, and, we, and we always uh, and we, we, we see like the negative repercussions that these asymmetrical effects can have already in, in the research on drones and we've talked about this this morning over the last two days so the fact that uh, at least kind of to this to this uh, to this feeling of helplessness on the other side right and to this feeling of, of kind of powerlessness in, in the face of uh, a technologically very superior um, um, enemy um, and I think that this reality actually is also present at the, at the debate in Geneva because I found that many of the, of the um, states were at the moment um, supporting a, pro, um, um, a preemptive ban on these kind of fully autonomous weapon systems as they're called um, are all states of the global south, right? Um, and I think that's quite, um, that's, that's quite telling um, given their history of interventions. Um, and it's also worth noting that I haven't really seen uh, um, the same extent of kind of unified organization among the global south and also society actors in other disarmament forums. So I think that in self, itself is quite an interesting observation, it has to do with this fact of tech distance. And I think there's also logical distances at the heart of the targeting process if you think about these AI-enabled weapons, uh, that, that it's becoming increasingly difficult to question data outputs. 
because there's basically no, um, I mean, even in, in my limited conversations that I had with the eye specialists, um, there's, there's even a limit to, what, to, how, to how far they can understand what machine learning, learning algorithms actually do and how they reach their, their decisions, right? So there's always this black box in the middle. Uh, you can potentially correct the output if you know that the output is wrong, but you still don't really know anything about the decision-making process. And I think that's very problematic in, in terms of how these systems could be used across all different stages of the targeting cycle. Because if you want to question that, uh, the judgment of that system or the output that they provide you with, how are you going to question that? Um, because you have, you have no way of, kind of knowing where it probably went wrong um, or, or where you could have um, intervened. So I think that's, that sets definite limits, right, to, to what we consider meaningful human control in any shape or form, right? Because it's, it's kind of a, a limit of, um, of our human reasoning capacities in a sense, right? Um, and I think there's, there's also this argument around which, which I find quite speculative at this point, and this is where I follow also what, what Larry has been saying, I think, is that, um, that at some point in the future, uh, machines might be more capable than humans to, dish, to, to, to make these kind of decisions about proportionality, about distinction, than we are as, as, as flawed human beings, right? Uh, this is very prominently put out there by um, an eye specialist called um, um, Arkin, always talks about the fact right that um, because these these machines would not be um, subject to emotions right so of, of, of anger or revenge you know of course also of empathy or other more positive emotions we might want them to be capable of but that basically means they would have this kind of detached stance that you could, could take in making these 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 assessments right um, but I think that is that is at the moment um, I think it's more or less he's always alone in being cited in representing that particular notion um, um, and and it, it seems to me quite a speculative argument at, the, at, at, at present. And I think it, always, it also kind of brings me to this kind of issue that I think there's this desire in the tech community that we can find tech solutions for political problems, right? So if only we could program this kind of perfect algorithm that would kind of help us solve these intricate social issues, then, then we would be fine, right? And, and I think that, that this kind of tech solutionism narrative is very dangerous because it, it basically outsources the, the, um, the, the tricky decisions about whether this is something we normatively want, right, to, uh, to again, a machine. Okay, I will now, I'm only at kind of six minutes, or more than six minutes, so I will talk a bit about meaningful human control. So, so this is kind of the idea, to what extent do we think systems need to be under some kind of human control to be appropriate, or to be, to be, to be considered appropriate? And I think it's quite difficult to think about this because there's so many stages in the targeting cycle and so many kind of touch points of human machine interactions that we could think about when exercising human control. And although this is, I think, quite a, or has emerged as being quite a promising concept in Geneva, uh, it, the, the reason why this has been so promising is because it's very vague, you know? So at the moment, states can more or less decide for themselves what they think would be meaningful human control. Um, so I think uh, you have a lot of states kind of coming out saying, okay, we want to have the human always involved, but, uh, but in what shape or form is, is, uh, can be very different. Um, and, I, and I think actually that, that we've seen in, in the past already systems that have been deployed sometimes for, for years um, that have been in some shape or form compromising meaningful human control. And in the case of the AI-driven systems I'm most interested in, these are for example, e different mis uh, systems of missile defense or cruise missiles. 
So, so where you have some of these limited AI-driven capabilities already there, uh, and they have been used, of course, for, for decades now, and they are quite widely spread. Um, um, and what I think these, these systems have led to are a certain type of non-deliberative or non-verbalized practice around what we think is appropriate about human con uh, in terms of human control. And this is kind of my analytical point I would like to make. So I'm interested in how norms on the use of force change and how practices um, can help us study these changes. And so far uh, in my kind of field I are, the focus has always been on deliberative practices. So we're coming together in Geneva, discussing potential norms that can guide in the future our use of force, right? And at some point, maybe states accept, or maybe not, right? Um, some kind of negotiated outcome. And at that point, you know, it, it becomes guiding for state behavior. Um, so, so I think these deliberative practices are very important, and there are um, many instances of international disarmament treaties where we've seen them kind of played out and become important. But I think at the same time, we have always been uh, missing out on these non-deliberative practices. So the practices that emerge from, from how weapons, new weapons especially, are used in the field. Of course, these weapons have to be IHL compliant, and usually they should be tested in that regard under Article 36. Of course, the extent to which these tests are really um, what they should be, right, is a, is a different point. But I still think that incrementally, right, uh, states have been using these systems in particular ways, right? Uh, and these particular ways um, are what I think are these non-deliberative practices. Uh, and around this, we see kind of crystallizing a certain understanding of what is appropriate when it comes to using these systems. Um, and only now, you know, that we're actually talking deliberatively about issues such as meaningful, meaningful human control I think do these kind of practices that have been around for decades actually come out and are kind of voiced, you know? Um, but, but I think that at the same time, these non-deliberative practices have already, uh, have, sorry, have already led to a certain norm, a norm in the in 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 understanding of a, of a standard of appropriate behavior that has not been verbalized and is now basically competing with these deliberative efforts to create a new norm, you know? So, um, and I think we see this very clearly also in the way that some states want to limit discussions in Geneva to these more futuristic systems. Uh, and they, uh, when, when, when the discussion comes to missile defense or drones, the issue always is that these are legacy systems <laughs> or, or semi-autonomous systems, and we shouldn't really talk about them, right? But I think it's, it's vital to talk about them if you want to understand what are the limits of meaningful control and also what these systems have, have, have already led us to think um, are the limits yeah, and what is kind of appropriate in terms of human control. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a really crucial point that we're missing at the moment. Um, so, so I think to conclude, uh, I just want to, in this kind of whole process, what I think is also very, um, a very kind of dangerous um, idea that I see is that sometimes many states have a tendency to want to portray these kind of systems of a um, of AI-driven development as inevitable. You know? So there's a certain progress. We are on the trajectory. You know, we have to use these systems, uh, and that's nothing we can do. Yeah? And we, at, at some point, we just, we, we're just going to accept them. You know? So we become more used to them. So I mean, there's this, this argument, if we get used to more autonomous cars in our, in our daily lives, you know, then eventually it will just be normal. right? So we will just use AI in our daily lives, and, and that's going to be it. Um, but I think we should also remember who has actually agency in this process and who can guide this process. Yeah, and these are exactly the people who, at the moment, are saying this is inevitable, right? Uh, just kind of deal with it. 
because I think technology is always ambivalent, it's never deterministic. So just because it's there, you know, and it will be shaping our future, it, it's, it doesn't do this on its own, right? But it does do this in, in a certain social context. And I want to end here with, um, with the Kohl and Witch dilemma. Uh, Kohl and Witch is a is, 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 um, historian of technology. And actually, he talked about a common trade-off between knowing the impact of a technology and the ease of influencing its social, uh, political, or innovation trajectories. And he basically said, when change is easy, the need for it cannot be foreseen. Or when the need for change is apparent, changes become expensive, difficult, and time-consuming. And this is kind of the dilemma, right? And I think we're somehow, I think this describes the situation we're in quite, quite aptly. Because we're still at the initial stage of these, of these um, of kind of rolling out these technologies in different social fields. Not many systems that are in use in terms of uh, military use of force have these AI-driven, or have significant AI capacities. Um, and uh, this makes it at, at the moment maybe harder to assess what actually the problems will be, you know, and, and where will they lead in the future. But at the same time, I also think that's a piece of good news, you know, because that means that we're not at this kind of costly end of the development trajectory, but kind of still firmly in the, in the middle. So we, we are at the stage where it's less difficult, potentially less time consuming to actually make these changes and adjustments. So this is, uh, and this is really why I think we should have these conversations very critically about this now. Okay, great. Uh, home stretch now. Um, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for having me, and thanks to Abigail and Eleanor and Remote Warfare Programme for hosting what I think everyone can agree has been a really productive two days, ranging from the theoretical contributions all the way to the policy implications. Um, for those of you who I haven't introduced myself to yet, my name's Robert Clark. I'm a postgraduate researcher at King's College London. My background is uh, 12 years in the infantry, uh, so I served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and more recently across East Africa in what the British Army called the SGPTs, the short-term training teams, or in sort of remote warfare jargon, the, uh, the security force assistants. Uh, my contribution today is going to be the, the implications of the rise of AI and robotics, uh, in particular unmanned ground vehicles and remote weapon systems uh, within the British Army, and how that can factor into remote warfare uh, as a broader concept, which I think we've debated enough over the last two days' definitions, and I'm, I'm not going to go there, but I'm up to, uh, I'm up to debate that in the Q&A after. Okay, so the three immediate implications for the rise of AI and uh, robotics. Uh, the first one is the continued increased investment um, across this technology. Uh, secondly, uh, it's the, the changing character of warfare that really drives this, and we're going to see this a lot more uh, frequently in coming short to medium term um, uh, conflicts. Uh, and finally, uh, there's a requirement for a much greater uh, degree of transparency uh, and the sort of the ethical and the legal frameworks which govern the uh, uh, technology and considerations further. Okay, so if you look at the increased investment uh, from the UK last year, the 2018 Modernising Defence Programme, uh, although it wasn't widely well received across, um, across various um, levels, uh, in terms of increased investment, it promised £160 million for the Defence Transformation Fund. Um, that's specifically got, um, geared towards uh, artificial intelligence within the Army and, and, and MOD. Um, but hopefully by 2019, the spending review, uh, that will gear... Uh, up to potentially uh, maximum 500 million pounds, so it's quite a sizable sum uh, for developing AI. If we compare that to the US, uh, last year the Department of Defense uh, initiated the, uh, the Joint AI um, um, Center, and that had a, uh, that had a budget of 1.5 billion pounds uh, there or thereabouts. And uh, then um, Assistant Secretary of Defense Shanahan described it as a uh, departmental priority 
sort of organise their AI programmes, roughly 600 or so within the Pentagon. Now, what's interesting with these figures, the defence spending for AI between the UK and the US is once we look at the defence budgets of the UK and the US, uh, last year uh, the UK defence budget was around 36, 35, 36 billion pounds and the US in pounds was around 520, 525 billion. So it's about 15 times a, a difference in budget. But when we consider the, the breakdown between the, um, uh, the JIC budget and the uh, hopefully with the spending review, it's actually the UK is spending just under five times the amount than the US in terms of developing AI and robotics. So I think that's quite an interesting telltale indicator of, uh, of the, uh, the spending. Okay, so why is it? Why is this increased spending? So it's the changing character of warfare that we've seen over the last few years. Uh, if we look at a quote from uh, Chief of the General Staff, General Carlton Smith, last year, he stated that warfare is increasingly moving into non-traditional spaces, and in particular artificial intelligence and autonomous technology. Now, these non-traditional spaces that he talks about are permeated by the characteristics that we term remote warfare. Uh, and in particular, recently, um, the developments of a new UAV technology, uh, if we look at Syria uh, and the use of the US Special Forces, um, the Switchblade, which is the first offensive um, autonomous drone uh, technology that's been used in theatre uh, against uh, anti-IS, anti-Daesh um, uh, drone technology itself and missiles. Um, the rise in UAV technology, this was touched on earlier by, uh, by Peter and a few others, um, and it's really reinforced within the UK uh, defence. Uh, last year, wrong, this year actually Gavin Williamson um, actually uh, reconfigured um, the uh, operational criteria for the uh, Iraq and Syria operational service model for personnel, specifically for UAV pilots and support personnel who weren't in the conflict area themselves, but were in mainly RAF Wellington and Lincolnshire and RAF Akateri in Cyprus. So we've had that debate already about how far removed now people within um, conflict and their eligibility for medical criteria. And Gavin Williamson stated that this reflects the changing character of warfare. Okay, uh, a more stark quote uh, from Major General Tickle. Um, he's the Director of Capability at MOD. He stated last year that we will need autonomous machines to make us more effective and to make us more lethal. Now, the lethality suggests a greater ability to neutralise targets and threats, whilst the effectiveness is a much broader range of military capability. And it's this duality between the lethality and the effectiveness um, that, I, uh, that I seek to address. Uh, if we look at the effectiveness for a moment, um, it's really the, the last sort of several years in conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. What's really been burdened and uh, overly um, pressured is the logistical and supply, the resupply and logistical chain within the army and wider military. Uh, if we consider the 2015 SDSR, uh, the capability for uh, creating two strike brigades, in addition to the global Britain approach that the uh, British foreign policy is, is looking towards, then this logistical and resupply burden will only increase in, uh, in coming conflict. So what's to be done? Okay, so uh, last year the uh, uh, um, the DSTL uh, commissioned the AI uh, research and development, the autonomous last mile resupply system. Um, now this had three aims. First was to reduce the logistical burden I've just mentioned. Uh, second was to provide new, op new operational capabilities. So in particular, um, new online delivery systems which were autonomous and autonomy in vehicles and weapon systems. Uh, and thirdly is to reduce the operational um, casualties that we've seen in recent conflicts. So the bulk of the ALMRS programme was uh, Autonomous Warrior 18, which was last year. Uh, it was conducted in Salisbury Plain by one armour brigade. Um, now, the, it really focused on the five remaining projects um, out of 50. Um, and those aim to enhance the situation awareness and system support, movement and manoeuvre, firepower, and crucially, when we look at um, remote warfare, uh, force protection and sustainability. 
So the uh, one of the um, one of the uh, projects that really came to the fore over Thomas Warrior was the uh, the Femus platform. Now it's got several different platforms, uh, as you can see in the pictures. Uh, the bottom picture is the, uh, the transport platform. Um, the top left is the uh, is the Spence and Target acquisition platform, um, the Elix XL. Now that can incorporate um, internal organic UAV autonomous technology. Uh, and top right is the uh, the remote weapon system, so the Adder, which has a 50 cal heavy machine gun. And there's also the projector, which has a javelin anti-tank capability as well. When we look at uh, the roles that these machines and this, uh, the autonomy of machines can have uh, within current operations, we can really see it as a force multiplier if we consider within offensive operations. Um, so it has two real roles. One is the, the remote weapon system consideration in, uh, in fire support. Um, and the second role is the support role that I've alluded to earlier, transport and resupply. Um, now, with the, the, original, uh, the original platform and the bottom one, the, the transport platform, uh, in terms of like, uh, an infantry capability on the ground, that can actually uh, resupply uh, a platoon 200% of its operational capacity in terms of food, water, ammunition, and medical supplies. Uh, so it relieves a huge burden on the, the resupply chain, uh, uh, quite, a low, uh, quite a low structure. If we look at the, uh, the remote weapon system consideration, now this can relieve a two to three man uh, gun crew or an entire mechanized platform, which can provide a similar capability, sort of uh, either the Foxhound or the, uh, the Mastiff. Um, and also crucially for the casualty extraction, uh, you can set the, uh, set the, uh, the transport platform for pre-designated waypoints, um, set remotely, and this can bring back casualties uh, two at a time. Now, two casualties in a conventional sense would require at least an eight man litter team, uh, and also uh, considerations from platoon sergeants and uh, company sergeant majors, which have other roles on the battlefield as well. So that really frees up manpower, which is a huge, uh, a huge help. Okay, in defensive operations, uh, we can have it as area denial. So the remote weapon systems themselves, in addition to the experience and target acquisition platforms, uh, can really sort of hold and defend that key terrain in place. Uh, again, further freeing up the manpower. Now, when we consider how this can be implemented into the UK's uh, remote warfare approach, uh, if we look at the existing capabilities, they're uh, strengthened through especially the UGV technology and Themis. So for example, the security force assistance roles, if you consider Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria and Somalia, um, it, they are as a true force multiplier. In these regions, in the training roles, roughly 50% or so of personnel are involved in um, uh, force protection. So, i.e. securing the area and, and, and guarding the trainers and making sure it's a, a safe environment to operate in. So 50%, that's a lot of manpower. So straight away, you're relieving that burden uh, through the, uh, you can have the Spence and Tiger acquisition platforms, the uh, organic uh, UGV drone technology within them uh, to free up the, the force protection uh, side of these missions. And again, in the more, uh, in the more hot areas, such as uh, especially like Somalia and Afghanistan, where the, uh, where the um, SFA roles are, um, the forward oper operating bases, you can relieve manpower for defences with the RWS systems as well. And then when we consider the UAV deployments that I've spoke about in, uh, in uh, Syria and in Iraq, uh, both offensive and defensive capability, uh, the switchblade and the, uh, the, um, the anti-drone capability that they can have there, uh, these are already being operationalised in theatre as we speak against, uh, against IS. Um, so with all that in mind, there are ethical and legal considerations to be had. Um, now, I'm going to leave this more for, I'm sure there's many more people more qualified than me that can talk about the legal considerations. We had some of the legal framework, um, but I think certainly a help straight away is refocusing the narrative to one of autonomy in weapons, not just autonomous weapons. Um, uh, that will allow the debate to progress. Um, but what I will say 
straight away is the UK government need to engage more actively with the conventional assertion and conventional weapons. Uh, so far there's been very little dialogue, if any at all, uh, but really uh, by, by finding state-based definitions uh, for things like remote weapon systems, artificial intelligence, autonomy and weapons, uh, by finding these state-based definitions through the CCW, uh, that's really the basis for establishing the legal framework to actually go forward uh, with this technology. Um, and in so doing, it'll actually uh, attempt to redefine our ideas of normative acceptance and appropriateness, uh, which is crucial. Um, and yeah, by engaging the CCW further, further uh, the UK maintains its global role pioneering uh, the UGV technology um, and autonomy and weapons. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I would just like to echo Rob and say that I have also learnt a hell of a lot in the last... Uh, sorry, I'm just sitting my... Uh, yeah, I've learnt loads from people from across the spectrum in the last couple of days, so thank you very much. And thanks for the organisers as well. Um, so I'm delivering the paper. I'm obviously <coughs> Pete and not Camilla. So Camilla is the lady <laughs> up there. Um, I will say in the Q&A, so I'm more... I come at this from not from the techie AI side of things. So Camilla works for the APP on Jones. So any tech, techie type questions, direct them to Camilla or the other panel members, please. Um, yeah, <laughs> My, uh, yeah. The oversight I can deal with, <laughs> um, or try to anyway. <laughs> so um, the, what I'm going to do is uh, broadly structured in three way, three parts. So current UK remote operations. I won't go into kind of details of it I think we've probably all got an idea of what remote warfare might be or could be or might entail uh, but yeah so I'll just a very high level in that then um, get into the current UK parliamentary what the debate is around oversight where we stand currently with oversight what oversight looks like what some potential impediments to parliamentary oversight might be um, and then we'll end I'll end with just some again quite high level ideas about how we might try to develop or further develop oversight within the UK parliamentary system. So, um, yeah, like in some ways, the what remote warfare is and like whether it's even useful to define all these things under one umbrella is definitely up for debate. And uh, there's some, uh, I, yeah, like I, I can understand why you, in some instances, might chop and change them in and out, but kind of they basically encompass a broad range of things, including cyber weapons, cyber defense, um, training, all of that stuff we've been talking about in the last couple of days. So um, this is the kind of a tabular demonstration of, so this is here, this is an indicative, uh, indicative list of some of the parliamentary committees that would have some oversight over um, different aspects of remote warfare. It's by no means exhaustive, but I've tried, we've tried to hit like the big ones. So if uh, you think we've missed any of the big ones, right, uh, which potentially is possible, <laughs> then do let us know. Um, but yeah, so, and I mean, it's quite an impressive list of committees when you think about it. You've got the Intelligence Security Committee, which is a joint committee, def defense, and then a, a subcommittee as well, the House of Commons, Foreign Affairs, International Relations, um, and so on and so forth. So some of the kind of key committees in the UK parliamentary system represented there. And you can't, I mean, and there is oversight, right? Like there has, in some cases, instances of quite impressive oversight and scrutiny. Um, sometimes it doesn't go as far as the parliamentarians involved might like. Um, so there's been quite a lot of discussion already of the um, 
ISC investigation into the Rare Khan strike, for instance, where the ISC um, pushed back and said, um, here's some conclusions, here's some information, but we would have liked more. Um, and another instance would be the ISC's report from last summer into like its kind of third report into the rendition system. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, that it's not there is clearly some oversight and some people might say there's too much some people say there's not enough but like the puzzle isn't is there oversight the puzzle is have we got enough oversight is it fit for purpose going forward um, similarly the APPGs there if you're not familiar with the UK parliamentary system an APPG is an all party parliamentary group which is basically exactly what it says on the tin group MPs from and any party across the spectrum or independent MPs as we seem to have an increasing number. Some people might, you might get text messages, like a whole bunch might leave in the next 10 minutes. Um, yeah, so, and they do work together on, and you get like really interesting groups of MPs who seemingly have nothing else in common except an interest in a particular issue. And um, they can be chaired by Labour MPs, chaired by Tory MPs, um, so on and so forth. And again, the, the list there is indicative, um, but we've certainly gone, try to, highlight some of the, the most important ones um, and then on the, the final table on the right hand side that is an indicative list of potential barriers to parliamentary oversight that isn't to say that in some cases that that there aren't legitimate reasons for those being in operation so for instance that clearly in some instances it, is it wouldn't be um, right for the government to comment on actions right or certainly not before they were taking place um, there um, might be like yeah like sometimes like, so a lack of clarity over definitions and we've kind of had a lot of discussion around that over the last couple of days like, like what do we mean by for instance cyber weapons like if anyone can tell me what we mean by cyber weapons like I would love to know and maybe the UK government might like to know or not right maybe it's convenient that they don't know um, maybe um, like could, but it could be down to like stuff like failures to collate information. The most obvious one is in so it's been alluded to a couple of times already. Like the fact that the UK can honestly stand up and say that we've what are we up to now? Over nineteen hundred airstrikes in the in the campaign, the most recent campaign, and apparently there's one civilian being killed. Like it just isn't credible. It doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. Like the US's own models, like say it's about a, a civilian gets injured or killed about every 2.5% of the time, right? And we're way, way, way below that. I just, uh, so the, so the, that's an indicative barrier of, an uh, indicative list of potential barriers um, to oversight. What does the debate like? Again, we've had some of the discussion around this. Um, part of it is to do, comes down to the Constitutional Convention around um, the use of force. I think sometimes the focus on that is overplayed. Uh, it clearly it's part of the picture but I don't think it's all of the picture um, that like kind of some people say the convention doesn't exist if you're interested in the debate um, regardless of where you stand I would kind of point you in the direction of this recent report by the um, Society of Conservative Lawyers like uh, we were going to have a quote in it but basically the title says it um, even if you're in favour of the convention I would encourage you to read it because it's actually a really interesting report to read it's actually very well reasoned I don't actually agree with the conclusions of it but I learned a lot by reading it um, there's the kind of changing nature of remote warfare right like whether and it'll probably look different in 15 years time you could have the same com could have had the same conference 
uh, like maybe five years ago, it would have been much smaller and probably every paper would have been on drones. Clearly drones is a big part of the picture still, but it's moved beyond that. Um, there's debates around like, the assistance and we've touched on that. Um, there's a, a quote there from a Yemeni, um, Yemeni official talking about the UK's role in handing off intelligence and its use in drone strikes. Um, and so yeah, so there's kind of a, a broad ranging and continuously expanding debate around oversight and, and whether or not, um, you know, where, what would be legitimate oversight um, in, in these operations. Um, this is, and so with this one, again, we'd love to know if you think any of this could be moved around or if we've missed any important um, parts of this in the next slide. This is kind of a, a pictorial demonstration of the current site, the current state of the groups, parliamentary groups involved in parliamentary oversight. And so ranging from kind of groups that provide information, right? So the House of Commons Library to, you know, National Order Office, those kind of things that like cross-party groups that are official part of the UK state and any parliamentarian, regardless of where they sit in the House, can go and get information from them, they publish reports, um, over to like direct role in policy formation. Um, so there, there clearly are lots of other things that sit below this, but we've tried had to kind of pick and choose other ones. I, I was thinking when I was doing my final notes for this, it'd be interesting to know if anyone could think about how to incorporate the difference between the parties and then the kind of the backbench groups like the 1922 committee, right? Because sometimes they operate as one and sometimes they can operate quite distinctly. So if anyone's got any ideas how or where in this graphic or maybe they wouldn't, like let, let us know. Um, so yeah, so kind of moving up to the like the kind of privileged parliamentary committees, i.e. the ISC in the top top right hand corner. Um, this is the act activities that these groups engage with. So again, starting um, up in the top left, you've got the kind of briefs from the House of Commons Library, the how the etc. etc. And then down to kind of in the bottom right hand corner, the influences on parliamentarians beyond Parliament, so their constituents, um, their you know the media, public opinion, um, if could be their prior careers. People quite often uh, sit on committees that they've, because they've got prior experience of whatever they were a lawyer or they were um, had a certain role in industry, um, and so and then going all the way up to kind of the that's the, so vote on military action. That's the, the constitutional convention. So the most potentially active role or not in stopping um, parliament uh, or or giving acquiescence to um, on the. I think an interesting aspect of this, in some ways this would be good if you could have it 3D, but obviously we can't, right? So you could have like another axis where you would kind of go from proactive, so that's kind of like the current PACAC, um, and the acronym of that body, oh, okay, yeah, the, the, the acronym of that body um, escapes me at the moment, but they've got an inquiry into kind of the current state and the future state of um, UK operations to cut to reactive things, so like the um, response to the rare car strike. So you could have a third access access on, on this, but that doesn't work in this instance. Um, so uh, Rob, you covered a bit of this. So basically, there's going to be a buttload of um, money put into things that kind of fall under the barrier of remote warfare. Everyone's kind of aware of it. Um, Rob said it already. So yeah. <laughs> But you've Sorry. made the point. Yeah, done. <laughs> so this was just us trying to think about how um, oversight might develop, right? So the technology is developing all the time. I don't always fully grasp exactly what that technology is yet. 
Um, and I think lots of parliamentarians are probably in the same position. Uh, but it is developing and the way it's used is developing and so parliamentary scrutiny we should at least be having the conversation about how that might develop um, so rather than have kind of a simplistic like these are some recommendations I think might, we thought it might be useful to try and have this that show as a process so it's ongoing right um, so the first instance is so make policy available to Parliament so in some instances, it might be, there might be a need to create new policy, new guidelines, new um, definitions of things. Um, and so bring parliamentarians on board, right? There are expertise in parliamentary committees, um, in bodies like APPGs, within individual parliamentarians. Um, and I guess, I mean, it's not on there because this is on, uh, but kind of beyond that as well, right? bring the academy in, bring civil society in. Um, you know, continue to define definitions of um, of concepts, right? If we're not having, if it's not war, if remote warfare isn't war, then is it combat, right? Like that seems we need to define this stuff. Um, and if it, and if if Parliament doesn't do it, the courts will will do it, right? So uh, you know, do you want to just leave yourself subject to the court? <laughs> uh, it, yeah. Um, and so identifying gaps, right? So there will be gaps that will develop and we don't necessarily know what any all of those gaps are so how how but in some cases we do right so and in some cases there's just lacunae that's developed so there's no for instance minister assigned for the the remit of looking after of cyber weapons um, and i think that's probably just because it's a relatively new area and so no one's particularly been given it but if a parliamentary committee wanted information of it whether like public or in private then it would be great for them to be able to go right that's the minister um, and then kind of in another instance codify and expand responsibility and we've talked like the isc is the obvious one to get more responsibility but clearly it would need much more um resources putting into it or you could have another committee um we talked yesterday a little bit about um the sorry i've gone over I'll, 10 seconds um so for instance special forces right there is no body assigned in parliament to um oversee special forces either publicly or in camera it seems a, a huge gap and i will leave it there thank you very much <laughs> Okay, um, I hope I can still add something other than the, the last one of the two days. Um, it's, it's difficult, I think, but <laughs> I give it a try. Um, my research is about norms and autonomous weapons, and I make a bit of a broader statement on um, the normative dimension of autonomous weapons and AI, and I'm particularly interested in, in the questions what uh, normative consequences the increasing role of AI and weapon systems has, and also what makes the uh, the use of AI-driven security technology is widespread and also acceptable. And um, I first, first talk a bit about, about the background and what I think um, the research problems are before um, I talk about the, the effects of remote warfare, uh, the conditions of possibility, and also what I think are, are kind of the, the future problems of remote warfare. Um, to start with the background, I think the, the central problem of remote warfare um, will be how a technolo technologically compromised human agency can um, influence how, when, and why force is used. Um, but currently, the, the debate is mainly focused on law and how remote warfare and um, different practices of drone uh, warfare, for example, um, such as targeted killing or target identification or the development of a so-called uh, kill list, how they are important contestation of international law. Um, 
so the political and also academic debate is at the moment very much interested um, in considerations of how to define autonomy and also how to define the quite new concept of meaningful human control and we have heard about um, this before and we've also heard that the, def that the definition of both uh, terms or concepts turns out to be extremely difficult and they are therefore not very useful at the moment um, neither analytically nor politically nor, nor legally so overall I think the, the political debate is too focused on trying to, to pin down what autonomous weapons are as the future of remote warfare and I think the problem is that this directs uh, the focus away from important uh, political questions and it also means that we mainly talk about uh, regulation but not enough about constitution for example in a sense of what makes um, the emergence of AI in uh, remote warfare unavoidable and also acceptable and I think related to this is also the question to what extent uh, to what extent the existence of um, specific technologies shape the future of remote warfare how security policy is um, shaped by technologies and and less by political reflections for example so I mean um, they are important political questions uh, questions of political deliberation for example of accountability of responsibility of protecting human life um, which means of all asking whether um, remote warfare is legal or not is um, not enough in this regard I think um, now to talk a bit about uh, the constitutive effects of remote warfare and AI um, I think a first step is to defocus from autonomy as a technical feature and to do actually more analysis on the human-machine interaction um, quite broadly understood and the question is, is here how is human control compromised by the electronic processing of data for example and uh, by aspects such as the inexplicability of algorithms and um, we have also heard about this kind of uh, black box problem of, of algorithms um, also because remote warfare is not only about uh, a weapon that kills but um, particularly also about an entire process of surveillance of data collection of target identification of target tracking so there's a whole of ra range of elements which uh, play into this um, arrangement of uh, using force and this concept of meaningful human control also concerns all uh, these dimensions and not only how a weapon is um, operated who, who presses the button um, to, to put it like this um, the ethical argument is that a certain uh, extent of human control and um, human decision making needs to be maintained uh, to make the use of force the act of killing acceptable but for me the question is also doesn't make the acceptance of the idea of meaningful human control also the acceptance of technical solutions more likely and I think there's a risk that uh, technologies in a way uh, defines and is constitu constitutive for what uh, meaningful human control means in, in, a, in also in the political process um, there are at the moment strong signs that AI will play a major role in the future of warfare and in the sense of course it will also um, define what um, remote warfare will be uh, in, in the future and I think this particular concerns research in, in learning algorithms and machine learning um, which suggests that um, the aim is a technical solution uh, for a political normative problem and um, yeah, just, uh, to just give an example um, DARPA the US defense um, research project agency just announced in September of last year 
a multi-year investment of more than two billion uh, US dollars in the so-called AI Next campaign, and they will be researching what they call robustness and reliability of AI systems, enhancing the security of machine learning, and pioneering the next generation of AI algorithms and applications. So there will be a lot of research and research funding um, invested into um, developing AI um, uh, for, for use in weapon systems, for example. And I think this points to a further um, dehumanization of remote warfare in the sense that the distance from human decision-making is actually increasing. Um, we've heard about uh, the um, ambivalence of distance, and in, in the case of remote warfare, it can also mean um, that distance is uh, decreased. But I think when AI is introduced, it will um, certainly decrease um, when we think about human decision-making. And this challenges but can also shape our understanding of responsibility and accountability, I think. And it can also reinforce a constitutive effect on uh, what acceptable use of force is. Um, now to talk a bit up briefly about uh, the conditions that make these uh, developments uh, possible, um, I think we should focus more strong strongly on, on AI and on the different dimensions of AI and also how uh, dual use applications, for example, um, travel between the civilian and the military um, research and uh, development. So I think we should also take a closer look at uh, domestic security, uh, military research, and also the cooperation with leading uh, tech companies. And we have heard about Project Maven, for example. It's, it's a quite prominent example. But overall, I think there's a lack of awareness and also knowledge of the civilian-military cooperation, um, which I think can be crucial for uh, military AI solutions and how they are used. Um, Project uh, Maven is a, was a Google um, corporation, and Google will still continue to cooperate with the military, but also uh, companies such as Amazon or Microsoft cooperate with the US military or security agencies. So I think many of the problems in terms of accountability and resp responsibility are um, not only military problems, but they are related to the way AI is handled also in the civilian life. And um, I think this is important for how AI is or will become acceptable in, in, in security and defense. And by that I mean, for example, the role of AI in, in, in quite different dimensions, such as the future of work or, or medicine or care or policing or education. So I think we could do more analysis on the conditions that make um, a potentially problematic future of remote warfare possible and, and acceptable. And I think these are uh, legal, politi political, but also economic and, and cultural conditions. Um, I think when the role of AI becomes more acceptable in these dimensions, it will also have constitutive effects for what is acceptable in remote warfare. And I think an example is how we take care of our data, for example, um, which can be used as training for uh, training data for machine learning um, algorithms. And it, it's one, data is one of the most valuable resources. So security and military agencies have also interest in this data. And Regulating AI in all dimensions um, is, I think, also primarily about regulating the collection and use of data. And um, this also plays a role in the, in the international dimension of security. For example, the, the US are collecting vast amounts of data in Pakistan or Afghanistan. Um, and without access to this data, remote warfare will be probably quite different because it's really important for developing um, um, machine learning algorithms. Finally, to, to talk a bit about the future of remote warfare, I think we will um, certainly see a further 
intensification of smart, smart intervention and smart technologies. And AI will play a fundamental role in that. Um, and there's, there's this problem of dual use of AI. And I think um, this means that research into weaponizing AI will actually not stop. And it will be also very difficult to regulate it um, by an international agreement, for example. So I think the CCW will not really influence this development, um, regardless whether it manages to come to an uh, agreement or not. Um, in, in this sense, I think there's a strong risk that human control will be further lost in remote warfare, um, not least since the concept of meaningful human control is, is rather utopian even in, in contemporary warfare and does not really correspond uh, to practices in, in a very strict sense. So I think there will be also further depoliticization um, because legal regulations do not exist or are too vague and the political process does not really interfere um, in major economic interests and also in technological trends, which points again to the role of tech companies, for example. So this, this doesn't mean that um, meaningful political control is impossible, but I, I'm a bit pessimistic due to the wide acceptance of AI-driven uh, technologies um, assisting humans and how we are happy to give away our data, for example. So in some, I, I would expect a further um, broadening and deepening of AI um, empowered security in, in a domestic, but also in a, in a warfare context. And I think we will see more of kind of an enhanced surveillance using AI um, solutions and also maybe autonomous policing solutions in, in a domestic context. And I think this, this is also important for the future of re remote warfare and how, how this um, future of remote warfare will be perceived as appropriate and acceptable, um, which might not be considered as illiberal, but rather um, kind of in line with um, uh, liberal practices, also with a, a neoliberal political economy, for example. So I think that the fundamentals of uh, remote warfare are really at home and not, not somewhere in a remote um, country. Thank you. Thank you.